could and turn your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James. What is it about our culture that likes sitting at the back? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, well, welcome. Please turn your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James is really only a few pages long. It's found right after the book of Hebrews that we ended in April. Give you a moment as you're making your way there. This past week, for anybody who's been following the news or keeping up with current events, Egypt experienced a military takeover. The country remains in a, in a state of uncertainty and unrest. And, and all over the world, many countries really are in a place of uncertainty and unrest. There's, there's fighting, there's wars and rumors of wars all over the place. And in our own country, I'm glad that, that God has preserved us. We don't have any physical unrest. But if you read the news, we're a country that's divided, aren't we? We're divided by many issues and political perspectives. There's political infighting, infighting there's mudslinging, there's all kinds of... He said, she said, no matter what side anybody's on, people are hotly divided into their own interest groups, fighting tooth and nail. Depends on what network you listen to. There's different sides of the debate and you have vitriol and hatred being spewed all over the place. It's on the airwaves and television and print. And there's a new tolerance that's not tolerance at all, but it's really hatred and angry suppression of, of all, all who believe in absolute biblical truth. In the homes across our nation, it's, it's not much prettier of a picture, really. There's... Homes that are ravaged by the effects of sin. There's quarrels that are seen in every day in broken families and how anger turns into violence and murder on the streets as people fight, they quarrel, they struggle for what they perceive to be their rights. In church, many denominations, they're marked not just by healthy disagreements, which disagreement can be good and profitable, but by gossip and slander and hatred. Unless we think we're immune to all these problems, all these problems are without, right? This is Egypt, this is somewhere else, this is elsewhere in the world, this is our nation, this is those people in our nation, those people to the right or those people to the left or whichever side you find yourself on. It's those people, it's without, it's the problems are there and then we realize, no, the problems are in our own homes as well. We can see some of the very same problems. We're challenged by temptations to anger, to bitterness, to resentment. When left unchecked, it leads to, to murderous intents and thoughts. We can experience anger with classmates. Maybe you're thinking, okay, this doesn't really apply to me. These, no, I don't, we don't have these kinds of wars. We don't have these kinds of factions, divisions, anger. We don't have these problems. Maybe you've had anger with a classmate past year and you're not looking forward to September starting up again. Maybe you've had anger with friends, anger with those who disappoint us, anger with those who offend us, anger with siblings, anger with our children, anger with our spouses, anger with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe there's somebody here you've had quarrels with. We who once were lost, who were separated from God, alienated, going our own way, who God's wrath righteously burned against us. God rescued us. He drew us out. He called us. He redeemed us. He gave us a new heart and a new mind. So how in the world can we be so fraught with these temptations? How can we struggle with anger still? How can we be so angry? Maybe you found this morning you got angry as your coffee spilled on the way to church or whatever it was, whatever challenge you were facing this morning. How can we who've been redeemed, we've been reconciled by God. God was once righteously angry with us. And now, if you place your faith, your hope in Jesus, if you trusted in His forgiveness, then you've been reconciled to Him. So how in the world can Christians, how can you, how can I, how can we struggle with anger still? How can we be so angry? Together as a church, we've been going through a series that's been called Living at Peace Together as Disciples in Community. I've heard all kinds of wonderful testimonies about how God has been at work as we've walked through that on Sunday mornings and also in care groups as we've gone through a series really to apply it and it's called Resolving Everyday Conflict and it's in a good application of that. 
And yet I find myself at the end of almost nine weeks and I think, I shouldn't be struggling with the same stuff. I, I still have the same temptations, the same challenges. I don't know if you feel the same way. If you find yourself, I blew it yet again this week. I was angry. I got upset. We had a fight. We were struggling. So the question is, why are we still struggling? What's, is there something wrong with us? Are we, are we broken? Is there something unusual with us? Why do we struggle? Why do we have a hard time with just the simple stuff? Not being angry with our siblings, our spouse, our kids, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. Why do we just have a hard time with these things? I'm hoping these questions go through your mind at times as well, not just my own. Is something unusual? Well, these, are, these are really relevant questions for us, not just out there, but in here as a church and in here in our hearts. I propose something is indeed wrong with us. But it's not something that's impossible to change. Something is indeed wrong with, with us and with all of humanity. And in fact, there's something has been wrong with all of humanity ever since Adam's fall. Something so wrong with us that it gets to the core of our very being. So what is it? What is, what is this thing that, that makes us angry? Well, let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and read from God's Word together. I believe as we, as we look at this passage, as we look at the scripture from James 4, that God's going to help us see what's wrong. But more importantly, I think He's going to help us also see hope in Him. But sometimes, unless you can see the problem... There's not hope for the solution. See, unless we see the, the blackness of our hearts, we won't ever see our need for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Until we see that we have problems, we still as Christians have remaining indwelling issues. Until we see that, we won't experience the freedom in Christ that He intends for us. I believe God has freedom for us in these verses. So let's read together. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. God, we are a people who are in desperate need of you. Thank you, God, that you so loved us that you sent your son to rescue us. To redeem us, to change us, to give us your grace. Father, I am personally in desperate need of you. Each and every one of us here needs you to reveal our hearts, Lord, but... We need you to change us as well. God, thank you for your grace that is ever available. Lord, I pray for humility for me and for each and every one of us here. I pray that you would enable us to humble ourselves. Lord, I pray for the gift of conviction. Lord, I pray for you to enable us to confess, to repent, to change, Lord, and to receive your grace. Father, I pray we would not be a people who are marked by anger, but we would be a people who are marked by your good grace. I pray you should bless this message, Lord, in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The Bible doesn't skirt around difficult issues, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't kind of go around and ignore what's really wrong. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to do that as, as humans. We don't, we don't like challenging issues. We don't like problems. We like to skirt around issues. We like to pretend they don't exist. We like to pretend they're not there. Like we really don't have problems. The Bible says, no, you really do have problems. And here's what they are. It's clear. It's direct. And I'm so thankful for God's Word in passages like this that directs its attention really to the core of who we are, to the heart of the matter. The whole Bible, really, it's God's loving letter to us. It's His loving letter that He's, he's written to us to, to help us, to explain what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us? Why do we fight? God's written His Word so that He can help us understand what's, what's wrong, but then God gives us hope in Him. And scriptures like this, they're hard. They're not easy. We like to skirt around scriptures like this. I do personally. When I come to passages like this, I don't want to do time with it. Because it hurts sometimes. Sometimes there's some pain that's caused. But God sometimes uses passages like this to cut away. Because He wants to heal us. He wants to to give us new life. I find personally that when I come to this passage, when I came to this passage this week, and I was really wanting not to preach on it, because it's it's not easy, it's painful. I don't like hearing these words, but I find that this scripture in particular, it's like... It's like a surgeon coming with a, a scalpel and he's cutting away. And there's pain when a surgeon cuts. There's, there's pain when there's a cutting away. There's, but there's a redemptive purpose. He cuts away when scripture's like this because he wants to remove the tumor. He wants to get rid of some, some motives that we were unaware of previously because he wants to bring healing and he wants to restore us. And he wants to change us so we're not the same anymore. And so we don't want to be like earlier in James that talks about you encounter Scripture and you just hear it. He wants us to be doers of the Word, not hearers only, so that when we encounter Scriptures like this, we can say, Lord, help me apply. Help me be different. So as we're listening this morning, as I'm listening this morning to the Word that I'm preaching as well, I, I want it to be all of our desire to say, God, how does this apply to me? How can I respond? What are some ways where I see this passage at work in my own heart? Well, the good thing is, is that Scripture is it's not, it's not shallow. This passage it really answers this nagging question of what's wrong with us? Why do we still? Why are we so angry? As a people, as an individual, as a nation, as a race, a humanity. Well, James says in verse 1, look in verse 1, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's at the root of what's going on is what he's saying. What's at the root of quarrels? What's at the root of those fights? And if you're honest, you'll admit that we all have quarrels and fights. Now, they look different for lots of us. They look quiet for some. There can be a cold war happening for some. That's how they fight. There can be an angry door slamming for others and yelling and screaming. There can be an isolating and not talking. That's a fight as well. It can look very different. Anger comes in all forms, from the mild forms of anger to a frustration, irritation. You just don't look at the person. You just don't talk to them. Come in all kinds of forms. But he, he writes to us and he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, at the beginning of his letter in James 1.12, I think we have this passage up there. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Why in the world is James writing to us in chapter 4 about quarrels and fights? Well, James is writing to us now in chapter 4 about what causes quarrels and fights, because he wants us to be successful when we face those times. He wants us to understand what's going on so that why? So that we can stand the test. That's really the point of, of the book of James. Is he's writing to Christians to help them stand the test. Church, he's writing to us through the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, we want you to stand the test. I want you to stand the test. I want you to remain faithful. Why? So you can receive the crown of life that God has promised. And one of the ways that you're going to need to stand faithful is when you're encountering these challenging temptations to quarrels and fights. You need to understand them so that you can stand so you can receive the crown of life, so you're not unsuccessful in the fight. 
His desire, God's desire, is that we should remain steadfast under trial. I don't know about you, but I experience that kind of trials of anger all the time. The mild things when somebody cuts you off in traffic. It actually happened this morning on the way here. I was on the way here and I was just getting ready to turn. Some guy goes whoosh right in front of me. Beat my horn. Well, okay, that, that can be legitimate, but it could also just be anger in, in a subtle form. God's desire is that we should remain steadfast under trial. His desire is that we'd receive the crown of life. And what's framing this passage, it's not just, I don't want to be angry anymore. I want to be pleasing to God. My desire, our desire needs to be, not, not just in the, in the small areas and small things, but it needs to be in saying, how can I be pleasing to God? How can I live a life that's pleasing to God? How can I live in a way that I will be steadfast and receive the crown of life? It puts everything in perspective. It puts all those lesser desires that we can have, all of our other goals that we have at times. You know, we have myriads of goals that we live for each and every day. But I would posit, I think James would say as well, this, look, you need, you need not lose sight of what the main goal is. That's to receive the crown of life. It's to remain steadfast. That is more significant than any other smaller desire, smaller goal that we have. As Christians, God has given us a new desire to, to stand the test and to receive the crown of life. All of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I know that you want to love Him. You want to stand the test. But we face temptations, don't we? We face all manner of temptations to turn aside from God, turn to other things. In, in verse 13 of chapter 1, James says, he says, no, no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Notice what it says. Not, not by externals, not by God. We're lured and enticed by our own desire. Then desire, our own desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, nothing has changed in the way that the human heart works. Thousands of years ago, James understood through the Holy Spirit how the human heart works. It still applies to us today. It, it applied thousands of years previously to Adam and Eve as well. There was a desire that gave birth. Nothing's really changed for us today about the core of what motivates us. We are motivated by desires. We're motivated by passions. Technology has changed the world. The world's maybe gotten better at different things. Gotten better at killing. But what we desire, it might look differently, but really at its core, fundamentally, how we're motivated is still the same. How we're motivated is still the same. We're ruled by our desires, by our passions. It says that we're enticed by our own desires. And when our desires have conceived, they give birth to sin. So here, back in chapter 4, James says, he brings things around again and he explains. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Look in the second part of verse 1. He says, is it not this? Scripture gets boils it all right down to something very simple. Difficult, but simple. He says, is it not this? That your passions, your desires, those that remaining sinful desires, your passions, your desires, they're at war within you. There's a war going on inside of us. That's the cause of these quarrels and fights. God's not causing you to be angry. Maybe you've been angry with God and thinking it's His fault. God says, no, this is desires that are waging war in yourself. You need to see that so you can be set free from that. How are you set free from anger towards God? It's by seeing that these desires are your own and God wants to set you free from them. Your fellow man, he's not causing you to be angry. Did you get that? It's not the person here beside you. It's not your spouse. It's not your friend. It's not your neighbor, your coworker. We need to hear the truth of the scripture. I wish I could somehow say that as a pastor, I'm somehow immune to this. You know, Aaron and I were somehow immune to this. We're not. We're not immune to these very same temptations. I wish that we could say that we don't get angry, but we do. There's no difference between each and every one of us, no matter what our supposed role is, no matter what the difference is in, in what God has called us to, we all struggle with the same thing. We're all tempted by our own desires. 
I'm tempted to get angry when I don't get what I want. I'm tempted to anger when things don't go my way. I'm tempted to be angry with my spouse and my kids and with my parents, my siblings. You know, I thought when I turned 40, I'd stop getting angry with my siblings and my parents. It doesn't stop there. My goodness. I thought I left those things behind. I thought I left them by the wayside. You know, I won't be angry with my parents anymore. I won't be angry with my siblings anymore now that I'm grown up, right? But I didn't leave my heart behind when I got older. We don't leave our hearts behind when we get older. We may think that we're somehow left these challenges, temptations behind. And let me encourage you, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, if you are 5 years old, 8 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, you are facing the same fundamental challenges of the human heart. We all are. We don't leave our hearts behind. We carry them with us. And unless we deal with those hard issues, those core desires, all they do is become more refined. And we, we, we learn how to cover them up. And we learn how to justify them. It becomes harder for us to see. And Scripture wants to help us be free from these things, no matter what age we are. Now James, he's intentionally somewhat vague when he says quarrels and fights. He's not talking about anything in specific. It's it's internal. It may be literal fistfights. It could be just internal arguments and how you think about somebody else. Or it could be where you lash out at another Christian, another believer, and you argue, you yell. It could be just snappy tones. It could be irritation. It could be bitter sarcasm. Harsh words, yelling, cold war kind of fights. It could look different. Don't think you're immune to this. That you know, well, my, my wife and I we never fight. Yeah, you do. You just don't know it. You have a passions warring within you. We can be fuming and angry and bitter and hateful inside. Thanks be to God, we don't have to be like that. We're not bound by that. We can grow in that. Our passions are still at war within us. This word for passion, it's, it's translated times pleasures and, and desires for pleasure, evil desires, cravings. Although we're new creation, here's the thing that this scripture wants us to see is that sin remains. Sinful desires, they still remain. They still hang around us. The Apostle Paul, he described a sin nature in Romans 7. Romans 7, 21 to 23 says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But... I see in my members under the law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is a war going on, people. There's a war for our hearts going on inside each and every one of us who've been born again by God. Now, if you've, if you've not been born again, you, there's not the same war. You see, our desires are only for sin prior to God making us anew making us alive. If you have a desire to put to death the works of the flesh, it's evident that God is working in you. So there's a war inside of every Christian, those evil desires that we want. We want things that aren't good for us. We want, we want fame, we want fortune, we want money, we want glory, we want recognition. You know, we can think, oh, we don't have problems with those things, but then let's, let's boil it down to the real simple kinds of things. When you serve and you're really craving recognition, craving somebody to notice, there's an evil desire motivating that. We want to be praised for what we've done and who we are. What is that? That's an evil desire wanting the glory that only God is due. There's evil desires that face us all the time. Sometimes they're really subtle, like this accepting of glory seeking. We can become comfortable with it, but it's like sleeping with the enemy. It's never good. It's always dangerous. It's like laying down with a viper and hoping it won't bite us. We can coddle these kind of Notions and desires. We want praise and approval. They seem subtle. They seem okay. But the desire for glory, it wages war within us. Somebody else gets the recognition we feel like we deserve, we get angry. When somebody else is recognized, we're skipped over, we get angry. It's not fair, it's not just, it's not right. Somebody else is commended and we're not. It can be jealous, we can be envious. Why? Because we have a desire for glory waging war within our members. We want worship. We want the worship that's meant for God alone, and it's war. It's out now war. We should expect that. You know, in in America in, in the forties, 
There was a mentality of they were always aware of the need to conserve because there was a war going on. We need to have that kind of wartime mindset as Christians where we're, we're aware there's a war going on, of course. We need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful. There's a war going on. Don't think there's not a war going on. It's not out there. It's in here. We want to be in control. Maybe your desire is not for glory, but we want to be in control. We justify it saying that we like order, right? I like things to be orderly. Well, what happens when things aren't orderly? How do you react? Order is good, but when we get angry and we don't get it, it reveals where our hearts are and that it's not just a good desire, it's a desire to control our own destiny at times. Or maybe you're on the reverse side of things and you just like to be free. And if somebody constrains you, you get angry. Why are you imposing your schedule on me, telling me what to do? I don't want to be told what to do. There's all manner of evil passions that wage war within our souls. They remain in our hearts. And in 1 Peter 2.11, the, the Apostle Peter, he urges us and he says, Beloved, it's the same thing here he's calling us to. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, abstain from the passions. That's the same word. The passions of the flesh. I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. These passions, these pleasures, these desires, they wage war against our souls. And it's not ambivalent. They're seeking to take us down. They're not to be coddled and cuddled and protected and fed. I think God's calling us to say, no, we want to to do away with these things. We We don't want to coddle them. We're waging war against our souls and we won't get our evil desires, our passions, our cravings, our lusts. When they aren't fulfilled, you know what happens? Well, look down at verse 2. It says, you desire, you don't have, so you murder. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Now, I I don't think anybody here has murdered anybody. If you have, you can tell me afterwards and we'll help you go to jail for that. (laughs) But, But we murder in our hearts. We don't get what we murder, what we want, we murder. Most of the time the murder is in our hearts. But, you know, left unchecked, it will result in actual murder. Murderous intents. If they give birth, they lead to all kinds of nasty things. We get angry, we yell, we're hateful, we're murdering. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, he says, You've heard that it was said of the, to those of old, You shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Being angry is what he's saying. is It's like murdering in our hearts. I have to admit that, you know what, I'm comfortable at times with being angry. That's not good. But it's true. We can be comfortable at times with, with our anger much to my shame, there's countless times in the past month alone where I can think about how I've been angry with my spouse, my kids, others, and forget Jesus' words, saying that everybody who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. You know, it's not what we look like on the outside that's most critical and most important. Now, we spend a lot of time maybe combing your hair or dressing up this morning or showering so you don't smell bad, and those are good things. I'm grateful. Thank you. But God looks at the inside. That's what he's more concerned about. That's what we need to be more concerned about too. How much time do we spend on being concerned about, Lord, where my desires lie? How can I be more like you so that I stand the test, so that I win the crown, so that I see that the most important thing in my life is being like you and glorifying you in everything that I do? See, what's on the inside is what's important. In Matthew 15, Jesus tells us, Matthew 15, 18, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What proceeds from our hearts is what defiles us. We're not defiled by everything else externally. We're defiled by what comes out of our own hearts, our own desires. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's the desires that are waging war within us. They give birth to these things. These desires within us, they... We're seen on the outside. James is on in the next part of the verse 
in verse 2, he says, You covet and could not obtain. So what do we do? We fight and we quarrel. This starts early on in life, doesn't it? If you have kids, you ever heard them say things like this, you know, Mom, Dad, Billy, Billy took my toy, I want it back. What is that? What's going on? It's, it's, it's really this nascent form of idolatry, of struggling, desires, wanting things that we can't have. Or maybe you've heard like, it's not fair, they, they already had a turn, it's my turn now. I've got five kids, you know, there's most of my illustrations come from this. You know, maybe they've got, they've got five toys, I only have three. We do all the same things, we just, we just make them look better now. We know better. We know those, that seems childish, so we, we put it in different terms. God, they have, they have gifts that we don't have, and that's not fair. God, they don't struggle with illness and difficulties, disease, sickness. They don't struggle with the same challenge and temptation I do. That's not fair! And we can elevate our desires to the place where we worship them. God, they have five cars. I only have three. That's not fair. God, they don't have any bills. I have tons. That's not fair. We can elevate all these desires. We can elevate them. We can worship them. There's cravings that are going on in our hearts all the times. This, it's, it's waging war. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, I, I don't, I'm not struggling. I don't, I don't see that I'm waging war anywhere. Well, really? He talks about coveting. We just mask our coveting. We refine it. And from the, but from the early on in the teen years into adulthood, we can covet friendships. You ever done that? You coveted friendships? We're fitting in. You covet fitting in. You covet being popular. And it's not limited to being kids, too, by the way. It's not limited to the youth in here. All right? <laughs> we feel like we just don't fit in. We feel like that we don't belong. We get angry. We fight. We quarrel. I don't like those people. We can get jealous. We can call names. We can put other people down. We can covet being cool. We can covet being on the in crowd. We can covet all kinds of things and talents and looks. We can covet houses and cars. We can covet clothes and fashion sense. We can covet being a good parent. Isn't that crazy? Because we're all lousy parents, really. I mean, we're, just, we're all parents who are hoping in God's grace and thanking God that He's at work in us and He's the best parent. We can covet how someone else seems to have it all together. You ever done that? They've got it all together. I want to be like them. That's not fair. We can covet being a good cook. We can covet somebody who blogs and we wish we were like them. We can, we can see the unrealistic world that all of us can be tempted to paint. We can, we can paint this unrealistic world in, on, on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, Instagram, whatever it is. We can, we can covet this, this whitewashed, simple, superficial view of reality. But the truth is everybody can appear to be anything today. We can covet appearances. We can cover the perfect girlfriend or boyfriend. We can cover success in athletics. We can cover the perfect body. We can cover good grades. Cover the perfect kids. Cover dressing our kids in cute and cool clothes. I'm hoping some of these are resonating with you guys. <laughs> Is this all me? The world we live in today, it's so full of comparison and coveting and desires. It's no wonder there are quarrels and fights. We covet. We can't obtain so we fight and quarrel. Maybe the source of our fighting, it's, it's the parent or friend or spouse who we see is standing in our way and keeping us from getting what we want. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, we look at other people as either agents to deliver our desires or walls in the way of our desire. Let me read that again. We look at other people either as agents to deliver our desire or walls in the way of desire. And when we don't get what we want, we get angry and we want to remove them. We covet, we can't get, so we fight, we get angry, we quarrel. James is really cutting to the core here. He's doing surgery on our hearts, isn't he? Well, it doesn't stop here. He says, sometimes we don't get the things we want because God is not part of the equation. God's not in your thoughts and prayers. What he, that's what he's saying when he says, you do not have because you do not ask. God's not even in the picture. You're not thinking about God. You're thinking about your own desires, your own things. You're saying, why am I not getting these things? Well, part of the problem is that you don't have God in the picture. You're not, you're not asking. You're not going to God in prayer. You're frustrated. But then he moves on from there and he says, well, okay, well, fine. You say you do ask. Let me help you with that. In verse 3. 
He says, you ask and you don't receive. So either you're, you're, you're not seeing God, you're not asking at all, or you're asking and you're asking all the wrong, with all the wrong motives. You ask and you don't receive. He says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What you want is God to be like a giant vending machine for you. That's what he's saying to all of us. Often we can kind of Christianize our evil desires. We can, we can go to God and make our passions, our cravings palatable. We can even pray, God, give us these things as if that's the sole measure of our satisfaction. If, if we get these things from God, then, then we'll be satisfied, then we'll be happy, then we'll be confident, then we'll be okay, then we'll be at peace. If so, God says no. Often there are prayers that go unanswered because they're idols. Not that the things we want are bad, but that we want those things as the source of our satisfaction. We want those things as the source of our hope for fulfillment and peace and joy and happiness. We want those things to satisfy us. And God says, no. I want you to let go of those things. God will have none of that. God doesn't want us to be satisfied in so many lesser things. He doesn't want us to seek satisfaction in fellow creatures or the creation because ultimately those things won't satisfy us. He sees God's not being mean when He withholds those things we want so much, when He withholds a boyfriend, a girlfriend, when He withholds a spouse or a job or whatever it is He's withholding at the time. That's not God's meanness. That's not His displeasure. Sometimes that is God at work and saying, I want you to be satisfied in me alone. Other times, it's not so clear what the reason is. But sometimes that may be, may be for some of us. Other times, God's just lovingly teaching us patience and helping us out and helping us trust in Him because really the most important thing in life is not ease and getting the things we want. It's, it's standing the test so that we can be faithful and receive the crown of life. God doesn't want us to stand there and be satisfied in so many lesser things, but sometimes we can stand there and, and scream at God like like a little child throwing a temper tantrum. Just this week, I think two or three different times, I took something away from my little toddler, my 22-month-old. I took something away from him, and he screamed, and tears came out, and his mouth got huge. Ah! It was drama times ten. I mean, there was no calming him down, because I took something from him that he, was, he wanted, and he was, he was convinced this thing was what he needs most. And he was convinced, I'm being mean and you're the source of my problems, Dad. Now, he wasn't saying that with words because he can't talk yet. But he was saying that in every other way, kicking, screaming, arching his back, going limp, all the, all the wonderful techniques that kids do. He tried every play in the book. But I took it from him because what he wanted, what he was passionate about having it, it wasn't good for him at times we can be convinced that what is good for somebody else would be good for us, but we don't know everything perfectly like God does. We don't know best what our soul needs, but God does. We don't know what will lead to our ultimate good and growth and godliness, but God does. And we can be like that toddler, like my son. I can be the same way, and we scream because that sharp knife was taken away from us. Because our brother and sister is safe with it, but we would cut ourselves with it. But we want that knife. God's after our hearts, though. He knows what's best. He won't allow His children to follow after other gods of their own making. Why? Because it's disastrous. Look throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel, they were continually tempted to follow after other gods. And what does He call them? He called them adulterous people. The children of Israel, they... Moses went up on the mountain. They couldn't see God. And so what do they do? They, they collect all their earrings and their, their jewelry. And they make a calf because they want something they can see. They, their, their hearts are bent towards worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship someone or something else. And God knows that's still a temptation for us today. And so what does He say? Look down at verse 4 on the screen. It says, You adulterous people. This is not written to them. This is written to me, to you, to all of us. He's saying, You adulterous people. This is written to Christians that James is speaking to. Do you not know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? What he's saying is these desires that you have, that you want, even these subtle ones like desire for ease, maybe. Sometimes I just want to be easy. Desire for entertainment, desire to be fulfilled, for satisfaction, the desire for a relationship with somebody else, the desire for just peace, the desire for freedom. They can all become idols. 
See, we're made to worship God, but ever since Adam, we're tempted to worship the creature and the created. This is what tells us in Romans 1. We're always tempted. We're always tempted to worship the creature and the created ever since Adam. We're tempted in the same way. We can make all sorts of things our little gods, our little idols. We make little gods out of every desire and turn a good desire into something that's evil because we think we need it. We can worship things and people instead of God. It's not new. Look in Ezekiel 14.3. Ezekiel 14.3. This is, this is not a new phenomenon for us. He says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. It's all they can see is their desires. They have these idols in their hearts, the desires that they want so much and think that their happiness depends upon them, and they've set these blocks up in front of their faces. It's all they can see is their own desires. Taking idols in their hearts. How do we, so how do we know when this is happening in our own hearts? How do we know when somebody's been idolatrous for us? Well, when we bow down to it in our hearts, when we allow something to rule us to the extent that we're willing to, to sin, to get angry, to fight, to quarrel, to get it. Maybe you're fearful when you don't get something. Maybe you can look to somebody else or something else for a piece of satis- or peace or satisfaction. If I only have that thing, if I only have that person, if that person was only different, if my circumstances were only different, then I would be satisfied, happy, at peace, Joyful, trust God. What he's saying is no, you adulterous people. It's like spiritual adultery. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God. It's impossible to be both. Second part of verse 4, look in there. It says, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself not just a not friend of God. It's diametrically opposed when we're wanting the things of the world, when we're... Becoming friendly with the things of the world. We're making, it's like making ourselves an enemy of God. Jesus, He came to reconcile us to God so we could be friends of God. And yet when we seek after worldly desires and things and we worship them, we let these things control us. It's not neutral. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why is this the case? Because God is not allowing us. He's not allowing us to go down that route. He doesn't want us to He doesn't want us to be friends of the world. He confronts us because He loves us. You know, it wouldn't be loving if I did not passionately seek my spouse. Now, if my spouse was unfaithful, it would not be loving if I didn't run after her. love the book of Hosea. It's it's, it's a running after unfaithful spouse. Really, God runs after us. When we're adulterous, he doesn't say, fine, go and leave. No, God runs after us because he loves us. And he says, I, I don't want you to love other things. You know, if I looked at Julie and I said, Julie, of all the, all the women I love, I, I love you the most. <laughs> it would be good if she was going to be upset and she punched me in the face. She'd have every right to. But we can do the same spiritually with God, can't we? God, of all the gods, I love you the most. It's not so funny then, is it? <laughs> but we can do that same thing. We can be tempted in that way. But it's impossible. We can't love God in the world. If we wish to be a friend with the world, we declare war with God. Look in verse 5. It says, Do you suppose there's no purpose in the Scripture? says, He yearns jealousy of the Spirit that He made that dwell in us. God doesn't want us to be satisfied in anybody else or in anything else. So He yearns jealously over you and I. And He's going to do whatever it takes to take us back to Him, to bring us back to Him, to a place where we're not in bondage and enslaved to all these desires anymore. If you've been convicted today so far, I hope you have, as I have been, of idolatry and spiritual adultery. There is Hope. You see, conviction is a gift that God gives us because He wants us to be free. It's not meant to, to end in condemnation. It's not what these verses end either. If we've seen quarrels and fights and indications, we need a heart transplant. There's a great hope for us. Look in verse 6. Why does Scripture lay us bare like this? Why? Why does it draw such a contrast? Why does it make us so hard on us? We can't be friends with our desires, our evil desires. 
Why? Because he wants to give us grace. Look in verse 6. He says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. God gives more grace to sin, than sinful cravings. God gives more grace to sinful, craving, adulterous, undeserving people like you and me. He gives more grace than my sin. He gives more grace than your sin. There is more grace available for you than your sin. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. So God holds out hope to you and I this morning. He says, I want you to be free from these sinful desires. I want to give you my grace. Don't be adulterous. Don't be friends with those desires of the world. Come to me. So Jesus, it's... You may be downcast. You may be discouraged. I think this is a downer message, man. Jesus is lovingly coming to you and to me. And he's, he's lifting up our chins. He's looking us in the eye. And he says, come to me. I've taken it, I've taken it all for you. I've taken the punishment you deserve. I've taken the condemnation you deserve. I've taken all the guilt. I've bore all the wrath that you deserve for all this garbage in your heart. Because I want to set you free from it. Don't live in it any longer. I don't want you to be ashamed. You see, for all who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, in our place, for our sins, even the most heinous things and desires and evil thoughts, God... God forgives us from those things and He clothes us in righteousness and He gives us the right to stand before Him confidently to come into His throne room of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And believe me, we are always in a time of need. The latter part of verse 6, it says, Therefore He says, God opposes the proud. Don't be proud this morning. Think, this doesn't apply to me. Matt, you're just a jerk. (laughs) Tell me about these sinful desires in my heart. You know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Boy, I, I, I'm just aware where I'm proud. But there's grace. He gives more grace. Sometimes I think I'm too proud to receive grace. But there's hope to be humble. Look in verse 7. It tells us how. How can we receive His grace? In verse 7 it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit ourselves to God. That's what we're called to do this morning, church. Hopefully there's been all kinds of nasty, evil stuff revealed in our hearts. Why? So we can say, God, thank you that you've taken this. Jesus, thank you. You've died to free me from these evil desires. You died to give me your grace because you don't want me to be hindered by these things anymore. You don't want me bowing down to these idols who are mute and deaf and cannot help me. Lord, you want me to receive help from you. So we must say, God, I'll submit to your will. That's what he's saying. Submit yourselves to God. God, I submit to your will. I don't want to do it my own way anymore. I don't want to, I don't want these desires to rule me anymore. I don't want my own pleasures and passions to be what's most important and what I demand. God, like Jesus, I want to say, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That needs to be the cry of our hearts. We need to stop grasping for our own desires and instead open our hands up to God and say, God, I submit my desires to you. If they are your will, so be it. But God, either way, I'll trust you. I'll submit to you. See, the devil uses these desires and temptations. And so in the midst of this, this is resist the devil. These the evil desires, these temptations that come in. We, we fight the enemy in our hearts and then the devil knows that what tempts us and he comes from without. And we can say, no, this, the battle is the same. We resist those desires and He'll flee from us. And look in verse 8. How else can we respond? It says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. God's calling all of us, don't go away from me. We can have this tendency to hide when we see how evil we really are. When we see those desires in us, we have a tendency to hide. And God says, no, draw near to me. And I'll draw near to you. Even though you feel like I will be a, I won't be drawing near to you, I'm going to draw near to you if you draw near to me. You confess your sins, you repent, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It says, instead of pushing God away when we don't get what we want, God's saying, draw near to me. I want to I make you free. The desires that made our hands, our actions dirty, God says, put those things away. Let's get rid of the desires that made our hearts black. Let's purify our hearts. It's not to be double-minded, loving our desires and trying to love God at the same time. 
Then in verse 9 it says we need to respond. We need to be affected. This is difficult. We have a hard time relating to this. It's, I think at times as a church, we're, as a people, as Christians, we can fail to see there's an appropriate place for mourning. Verse 9, it says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. There's a place for being wretched and mourning and weeping over our sin. At times when you see our sin, our sin of anger, these desires that cause us to fight and quarrel and murder in our hearts, we need to see those things, mourn over them, weep over our sins, the effect of our sins. But not to stay there so we can have hope. We can see, God, I don't want to be like that anymore. I don't want to be ruled that way anymore. It's a gloominess that's appropriate for a season so we can experience the bright joy of His forgiveness. The grace of God, not only the complete forgiveness of our sins as we confess them, but so we can experience the freedom from our sins as godly sorrow leads to repentance and change. There's hope for us. Let me encourage you to start right away as soon as you can. When you go home today, get alone in the closet and say, God, I just forgive me for these evil desires. Lord, set me free. God, I humble myself. Ask for your grace. And then go to somebody you've been angry with or struggling with or having fights and quarrels with, your, your friend, spouse, coworker, neighbor, whoever it is. As soon as you can, go ask for forgiveness. Humble ourselves. And as you do that, God's going to give us His, His wonderful freeing and liberating grace grace to liberate us from enslaving desires because those desires they war within us and they can they seek to shackle us God says no I want you to be free grace to breathe his fresh life into our souls that we can become burdened often we're burdened and weary because we're, we're burdened and weary with these desires and these cravings they they burden us. They weigh us down. And we don't realize, why are we depressed? Sometimes it's because we're not getting our desires. And God says, I want you to be free from that. So you're not burdened and depressed and down. I want to satisfy you with living water. I want the band to go ahead and come forward. I know it's 11.59. We have, we have two minutes, but go ahead and come up. I want to sing a song together. God desires to feed us with his bread of life. He desires to give us joy everlasting. In verse 10, he promises, Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. God will exalt us. He will lift us up. It's not us that lifts ourselves up, but He will lift us up. So this morning, let's stand. And as we stand, go ahead and stand. <laughs> let's confess some of those desires that God's convicted us of. And, Let's also receive God's free grace. And let's rejoice that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in Him and His ability to exalt us. Let's sing.